The Apostle Matthew, that's the title. Uh, we've been looking at the series of the 12 Apostles. And um, there are some people that God uses that if we were honest, we would say, why did God use them? And why does he use them? I would have picked someone else. That is exactly the people God uses. Listen to Paul in 1 Corinthians 1, through 29. He says, but God has chosen the foolish things of this world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of this world to put to shame the things that are mighty. And the base things of this world and the things which are despised God cho- has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are that no flesh should glory in his presence. That that person would be fully persuaded that in them there is not one good thing. And though God does not force us to do like robots without free will. But when God does what he does as we yield to him, to him is all the glory. Very, very important. The interesting thing is that there are many other disciples and were at that time. That Jesus could have chosen those who had been with him from the beginning of the baptism until his ascension, such as Joseph called Barsabbas, or Justice and Matthias, that they um, uh, chose to replace Judas Iscariot. But um, he chose 12. There was no mistake about it. He did it through an entire night in prayer. And as we've been using, um, the uh, list in Matthew 10, um, Matthew here now comes as the eighth apostle, and we want to look at him under three categories. First, the character, Matthew. Secondly, the call of Matthew. And thirdly, the commission of Matthew. The character of Matthew, names mean a lot. Names have significance. Matthew's name means gift of Yahweh, equivalent to the name Theodore. The name of Matthew appears five times. Three times in the list of the twelve that we've seen, Matthew 10.3, Mark 3.18, and Luke 6.15. The fourth is in the book of Acts, that last list in Acts 1.13. The name Matthew falls in different orders in the list as you compare them. Matthew, uh, he is eighth, followed by Thomas. In Mark and Luke, he is seventh, followed by Bartholomew. And in Acts, he is eighth as Matthew, but he follows Bartholomew instead of Thomas. So there's differences that we see, and there's also consistencies in groupings. And um, we can't always explain why, but we see the different groupings, as we've noted, which is very important. The name of Matthew is the second group of four. He is the second most intimate group in relationship to Jesus Christ. And he is the third or fourth in the order of the second group. Matthew is known by another name also, Levi which means join. You remember one of Jacob's sons, Levi. You remember that Levi was the family of the priesthood, uh, Moses, Aaron, and then 
um, the, the, the Levitical priesthood came in three families. Now it appears four times the name Levi in Mark 2.14 and 15 and Luke 5.27 and 9. Again, we have two names for Matthew, like Peter, James, John, and Bartholomew. So once again, uh, sometimes people look at them as two different people, but they're speaking about the same person, two different names. Now the lineage of Matthew is interesting. He is called the son of Alphaeus in Mark chapter 2, verse 14. And his father is not to be confused with the father of James, also named Alphaeus. So you have to contrast in Matthew 10, Mark 3, 6, um, Luke 6, and uh, Acts chapter 1. So as you compare these things, and that's why God goes to the extent of giving us these lengthy genealogies or particular genealogies, so that you can see the accuracy of the Scripture. Because every time you add another detail to something or someone, you take another chance of making a mistake or contradiction. And when you compare all these things, whether it be geographically or um, in terms of genealogy of that, you see them line up perfectly. You see them confirmed. Now, among the 12 apostles, there were two James. James, the brother of John, one of the sons of thunder, and James, the son of Alphaeus, as we saw. There are also two apostles named Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot in Luke 6, 16. We know nothing about Matthew, neither his place of residence, nothing about his upbringing, nor any other family descendants. And God does this. Sometimes he takes a person and he gives very much detail, and then other times just boom, one thing or two things. It is sufficient. It is all we need to know about them. There's nothing else to be known about them that God wanted us to know. God didn't finish the Bible and said, oh, I should have put that in. He was a Jew living contrary to all that had, he had been taught. Everything he knew to be wrong, that's where he was at. Most of us were um, raised in the world. We might have been religious, but we weren't Christians. So we lived according to the world. Two different lives. The religious life, the secular life. But there are others who are born into Christian families and they are brought up and raised with great privilege of the knowledge and the sanctity and the blessing of God. To them is the greater accountability. For to those that much is given, much more is required. He was violating his conscience even to the point of searing it. Very well knowing he fell under the wrath of his, the people, the Jews, if they got a hold of him as well as God. He was vilified by all. He became more callous, withdrawn, and lonely. Sometimes you look at these individuals that are celebrities and they have um, 
the cars, the houses, the money, the looks, the chicks, the guys, whatever. And they seem to have it all. If I believe my Bible, the Bible says it's emptiness. God has put that emptiness in our heart that it can only be filled by Jesus Christ. Because when you say, well, you know, if I could only have that guy, if I could only have that girl, if I could only have that car, if I could only have that house, and when you get it, you go, all right, what's the next one? You're never satisfied. It's like drugs. It just escalates, but downward. Destructiveness. The occupation of Matthew is a publican, a tax collector. The title publican tax collector um, meant a renter or a farmer of taxes, literally. There is no other apostle listed by his profession prior to coming to Jesus Christ. Matthew is the only one. And Matthew alone identifies himself as a tax collector or publican in his list of the 12 apostles. So it's not like one of the other ones, yeah, and Matthew, the tax collector. No, he. Paul says, I am the chief of sinners. All my accolades are considered as a pile of manure, refuge for the excellence of Christ. Every person has to come to that point when you realize all your accomplishments, all your brilliance, all your whatever, they mean absolutely nothing. But you must be persuaded of that and make that confession yourself before God. Many people say that before people. They don't mean it. It's just prideful humility. That's all. False humility. But before God is what matters. And that comes by the conviction of the Spirit of God. When you understand who you are and who's the one who's saving you. Matthew, I believe, does, does so to exalt the grace of God over his sinful life. Matthew, I believe, does not give hope to all thinking themselves too sinful. It gives him great hope for Christ to accept him. If Matthew can be saved, then maybe there's hope for me. Hmm. Matthew being the only one listing himself in such fashion also reveals the love and acceptance of Matthew by other apostles, never wanting to demean him of his old profession. And that's something that each of us have to be careful when we look at each other, that we make sure we see each other as new creatures in Christ Jesus. Not only others, but our wives, our husbands, our children. Sometimes we can appear to be more gracious to complete strangers than to family members. And God reveals our heart. We have to be careful. Mark and Luke and Acts list him simply as Matthew. Now, publicans or tax collectors were hated and despised by all, as you know, but most of all by the Jews being under tribute to another government. The Roman government subcontracted. 
the various regions and to the highest bidder under this title of a publican or tax collector. And they set an amount to Rome that would be um, paid and then anything else taken would be the tax collector. So they would bid for the job. Whoever gave the best, they, they, you know, people, contractors, you know, there's a contracts for the, for the state, for the county, and um, whether it be building, contracting, moving uh, dirt or whatever, and they bid for those contracts, and the best bid gets, uh, gets the job. Well, this was no different. Um, and so the set amount would be the tax collectors after they met that um, thing, but they had the uh, reputation of being very dishonest. Nothing has changed. IRS. They've got a license to steal, right? Let's face it. With the complex tax code that we have, I don't care how clean you think you are, and you may have everything in line. If they recall you, they will and can find something, and you will lose everything. They have more money, and they have more time, and they can outweigh you. Simple. Golden rule. Whoever has the gold rules. Right? Now, there were two types of tax collectors. Those that um, would have others collect the tax for them and pay them a fee. And then there were those who collected the tax for themselves because they didn't want to lose that portion. Greed. Once it was asked of one of the wealthiest men, um, how much is enough? He says, just a little more. Hmm. This was Matthew. He did the collecting. He sat at the custom or tax office at Capernaum to collect all for himself, the very headquarters of Jesus Christ. No coincidence. Luke chapter 5, verse 27. To make it worse, he knew that the collected tax of Capernaum would go into the treasury of Herod Antipas. The Jews hated him. The collectors or publicans were considered the worst of all men. They were categorized with prostitutes and sinners. They were the lowest of men, notoriously dishonest, fleecing not only their own countrymen, but also the government who they worked for. There were no rules. The thought of a Jew collecting taxes was considered uh, a very unpatriotic thing uh, that any of them could do as a Jew, in fact, considered a traitor to his people. This was Matthew. Publicans were barred from the synagogue. They couldn't go in. That is why the tax collector standing afar off would not so much as lift his head or his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Luke eighteen thirteen. Jesus pointed out. There were two men, the tax collector and the Pharisee, who prayed, Lord, I thank you, I'm not like other men, and I'm not born a woman, and all this and that. The daily Jewish prayer. 
This man prayed to himself. That man went away justified. Because God looks at the heart, not the outwardness. Publicans were um, not permitted to testify as a witness being known as perpetual liars. So once again, many things don't change through time. Tax collectors spared no one, not the widow, not the orphan, the poor, nor the oppressed. This was Matthew, and he knew what the law had to say about such a person. I don't know where you came from. I don't know where you were at. But sometimes people just get so deep into sin that they become numb to it. Nothing bothers them. What they do is just shocking when someone would see it and they just laugh at it. The taxes were of various kinds. There was a ground tax, one-tenth of his grain, one-fifth of the fruit of the vine to the government, either cash or of the kind of the fruit. There was income tax, which was 1% of man's income. There was a poll tax that was paid for every male from age 14 to age 65 and females from 12 to 65. There was a tax on all goods imported or exported from 2.5% to 12.5%. There was taxes to travel the main roads, cross bridges, enter the marketplace, towns and harbors. Nothing new. <laughs> I hope you're going to vote. Want to change California? Get out and vote. Simple. If you don't vote, don't complain. You get what you deserve. There was taxes on pack animals, number of wheels, number of axles on your cart. You know that every time you buy new tires, you pay a dollar something for every tire to dispose of it, right? Plus many other things. They just keep adding stuff. Publicans and tax collectors became very wealthy. Nothing has changed, has it? <laughs> John Newton, who um, ran away to sea and then to Africa, was sold at last to a black woman. He sank so low that he lived only on crumbs from her table and on while yams dug at night. His clothing was reduced to a single shirt and he washed it in the ocean. When he finally escaped, he went to the natives accepting their base life. And it does not seem possible for a civilized man to have sunk so low, but the power of God laid hold on him through a missionary. He became a sea captain later became a minister. He wrote many hymns sung around the world, like Amazing Grace. I'm sure you wouldn't want him to marry your daughter when he wasn't in Christ. And maybe you would even doubt to accept him 
after having come into Christ. In the Church of London, which he was a pastor, there is still an epitaph which John Newton wrote for himself. It reads as follows, quote, Sacred to the memory of John Newton, once a libertine, a blasphemer, a slave of slaves in Africa, but re renewed, purified, pardoned, and appointed to preach the gospel which he had labored to destroy. Those are the testimonies, ladies and gentlemen, of our history as Christians. Compare them to the testimonies of today. Where Christians say, yeah, I'm a Christian, but I still have an addiction and this and that. And, really? I, I, the old testimonies are, I used to be a prostitute, now I'm a godly woman. I used to be on heroin, God cleaned me up. I used to be a drunkard, and God saved me and turned my life around. The power of God. You must listen to what you hear today. Perhaps um, you're like Matthew. Your choices in life have caused more pain and suffering than the benefit you thought to receive through the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life that First John 2.16 says. Maybe it was a life of drugs that um, has caused you to have so much loss of the most precious things, or a life of sexual freedom that um, promised so much excitement and uh, thrill and fun, only to bring about regret and anguish and guilt, be it of abortion or children out of wedlock, whatever it may be. And that's the natural thing that God wants to bring to us, our conviction, our shame, our regret, that we might cry out for forgiveness that he might make us new, that his grace would touch us. Perhaps your pursuit was money, and you have been dishonest, even to your own family and friends, causing misery and loneliness. Publicans like Matthew are in the Bible to encourage those who have gone so far down into the pit in order to give them hope in Jesus. Whenever a person gives their testimony in a way that exalts them, that, that's not evangelism. That's carnality. That's boasting. When God gives us a chance to share what God did in our lives, it should be with the greatest of broken heart. And with the greatest hope that God would use that to reach the heart of the lost completely. Listen to Luke 19, 2, and then down verse 8 and 10. It says, Now behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, I have given half of my goods to the poor, and if I have taken away anything from anyone for, by false accusations, I restore fourfold. And Jesus said to them, Today salvation has come to this house because he also is the son of Abraham. For the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Any Jew who gives half of his goods back, he's got to be born again. 
a transfer of life, completely different. Jesus said, two men went down to the temple to pray, as I implied later, earlier. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood, prayed to himself, God, I thank you that I am not as other men, or extortioner, unjust, adulterer, even as this tax collector looking down on him. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I possess. And the tax collector standing afar off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven and beat his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. Luke 18, 10 through 14. Wow. We are to treat those in the church who refuse to be approached, to be corrected in their lifestyle, in conformity to the scriptures, as publicans and sinners, disciplining them, excommunicating them until they repent. Matthew 18. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church, but he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Matthew 18, 17. Where's Matthew 18 today in the church? They've tore it out of their Bible. We've lived by it for all the years we've been in ministry. You don't want to do it, but you have to do it. You're obligated to do it if you love the Lord. And so the character of Matthew was one of utter sin. Secondly comes the call of Matthew. Matthew 9, verse 9 through 13, we'll use it in Mark 2, 14, and we'll go to Luke 5, 27. I'll mark those out. Uh, We will use Matthew's own account and supplement it with the uh, other two, Mark and Luke. And so here in Matthew chapter 9, uh, verse 9, um, we are told by Matthew that Jesus passed on from the place in Capernaum, where he had just healed the paralytic, and he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office there in verse 9. And Mark and Luke only differ in that they call him Levi, the son of Alphaeus. Jesus must have seen Matthew many, many times, sitting there in his tax office, just collecting. I'm sure their eyes must have Locked together many times. Jesus must have brought such conviction to Matthew as well as feeling of compatibility with Jesus. Conviction due to the fact that he was a Jew, a traitor to his people. Knowing that the scriptures condemned him. Compatibility due to the fact that both Jesus and Matthew were hated by the Pharisees and the scribes, both outcasts of society on opposite sides. Then we're told in verse 9 there by Matthew, the Lord Jesus said to him, Follow me. Mark and Luke tell us nothing different. This was the day which Matthew would have to make a decision about Jesus, as you and I did. Roger Avila made a decision years ago to follow Christ. 
raised his family, prayed for them, provided for them, an example to them, served every Sunday. And he's with the Lord now. That decision he made determined his eternity. Wow. The timing of God is sovereign and perfect when he calls us. From my perspective, I wish God would have saved me when I was six years old. (laughs) But such was not the case. How that works out with God's initiating and my responding, I, I, I don't understand. But it's all to the glory of God. The decision was actually an invitation to leave behind his life occupation. Then Matthew tells us that he um, arose and followed him. And Mark again adds nothing new. The phrase to follow him meant he believed who Jesus said he was, the son of God, the savior of the world. Not just to hang out. The phrase meant he was following The kingdom of God based on righteousness, peace and joy in the Holy Ghost, not money and wealth as before. Luke adds, so he left all, rose up, and followed him in Luke 5.28. For Matthew, it was a decision of abandoning all. He could never go back, even if he wanted to, as the others did in fishing. For Matthew, it meant everything was being laid down. For Matthew, it was total surrender to never look back. He is burning his bridges with the Roman government, with all other tax collectors. He would never be accepted. Now, the reaction of Matthew was to reach out to others like him. This is the consequences of God touching our lives. Um, Matthew chapter 9, verse 10, uh, he tells us, Now what happened as Jesus sat at the table in, in the house, and Mark and Luke can tell us the feast was at Matthew's house in Matthew 2.15 and Luke 5.29. So remember, he was a tax collector, wealthy. I'm sure he had a huge home. And Luke says it was a great feast in Luke 5.29. Matthew was excited about his decision. And his new life. Remember? I remember. A complete. Incredible change. A shock. Matthew was excited about introducing Jesus to his friends as guests. And honor. That guest. The one that's to be honored. So he threw a party to celebrate his new life. Matthew tells us there in verse 10 of chapter 9 that behold, many tax collectors and sinners came. These were the outcasts of the earth. These no religious person among the Pharisees, the scribes or the Sadducees would ever be seen talking to these people. None of them. 
These were the ones no one offered any hope to. They had been written off by society. Matthew tells us also that these individuals sat down with him and his disciples there in verse 10. The apostles were like their master. Luke again doesn't add anything else. Mark tells us an interesting fact that there were many and they followed him. So not only Matthew, but due to this feast and celebration and introduction of Jesus to this whole circle of, 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 of uh, den of thieves, if you will, many of them were born again and followed Jesus. This was the entire purpose Matthew had the feast. Not to celebrate himself, but to save his friends. Hmm. I look at some of these um, so-called pastors and evangelists that are presented as the greatest thing since ice cream. And lights going on everywhere. And people standing up and applauding. You think you're at a rock concert. Where's the humility? Where's the holiness? We've tweaked the church today, ladies and gentlemen. We must judge it by the word. The response of the Pharisees to Jesus is given in verse 11. Matthew declares that when the Pharisees saw it, they said to the disciples, Why does your teacher eat in, with tax collectors and sinners? Mark tells us that they said, How is it that he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners in, in Mark 2.16? In other words, how can he bring himself to associate and be one with them? The closest thing you can do is like to eat with someone. You would have little bowls you've eaten at some Mediterranean places, and you know, and then they give you the bread, and everybody breaks it off the same bread, and they're dipping the bowl, and there was no double dipping rule, and everybody was dipping there, and the guy, you know, one guy, I like you like that, and they dig in there, and, and I mean, you became one. I mean, you couldn't get a DNA sample; it would be a conglomeration of DNA in there. No Jew would eat with a Gentile. Remember Peter on the rooftop at Joppa in his vision um, where Jesus says, uh, take, kill, and eat. He says, not sold, or I've never eaten anything common or unclean. He says, never call that common which I have cleansed. And he sent it to the house of Cornelius in Acts 10. Wow. Luke tells us that the Pharisees um, grumbled against the disciples and asked them, why do you eat and drink tax collectors and sinners? They, being Jews, also were being asked to re-examine what they were doing. You see, and there will always be people in your family or your friends who are religious that will question your Christianity. Why do you go to church so often? Why do you believe in this? Why do this and that? You must point to the Word of God. You must point to Jesus. But being one with Jesus, we're equally being rejected as Jesus by the religious community. 
In verse 12, Matthew tells us when Jesus heard this, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Very simple. The response is a sharp rebuke to the religious men of his day. The leaders of the people. They first failed to see their own need of the physician having the sickness of sin. For all have sinned, Romans 3.23 tells us. They also failed to rejoice at the spiritual cleansing and healing of those who were sick. Remember the three parables? You have the lost coin, the lost sheep, and the lost two sons that many pastors and Christians use as prodigal. The prodigal son, yeah, my son, my daughter knew the Lord. And they walked away, but the Bible says they'll come back. Wrong. You get an F in the subject of the Bible and parable interpretation. It is the third, the climax of the three parables to indicate that one, the angels rejoice over the repentance of one sinner. The prodigal son was never born again until he came back. And the other son remained lost in the father's house. Context, context, context. Matthew 9.13 tells us Jesus instructs them by sending them back to the scriptures. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. Now some translations omit um, um, repentance. And it says, For I did not come to call righteous, but sinners, sinners, sinners. Oh, how convenient. You left the most important part to repent. Subtle, wicked. Mark and Luke add nothing to this point. Matthew is the only one who points out the passage in Hosea that I desire mercy. And not sacrifice, according to Hosea 6 6. Now, Jesus tells us to go learn what that meant. As much as he told them. God did not, nor does he today, delight in sacrifices. They are um, a stench to him if our heart is not right with God. God delights in being merciful, having pity on those who cannot help themselves. God does not delight in judgment, but in mercy and forgiveness. In fact, Matthew declares plainly and clearly the entire purpose of the coming of Jesus, both to the earth and his house. It was to call sinners to repentance, not the righteous. Real simple. The implication being that all qualify as sinners. Do you see yourself as a sinner? Or do you just say it because it's nice to say? It means to miss the mark. If you miss the mark, you didn't hit the mark. That means you don't get in. The declaration that there are none righteous is the absolute objective declaration. You either believe it or reject it. It's not subjective. Righteous means right with man. Godliness is right with God. If you're not right with man, it's because you're not right with God. One's the carryover. The vertical is the most important. It's a carryover to the horizontal. Two tables of the law. 
First one, man, man to God. The second one, man to man. The first one has to come first. One Sunday morning in 1856, a congregation of well-dressed people had been uh, ushered um, to their rented pews in Chicago, uh, Plymouth Congregation Church. Suddenly, there was commotion near the door. Many turned and they looked, and something occurred which had never before had been seen by the elite congregation. In walked a young man, 19-year-old salesman, following him a motley group of tramps, slum people, and alcoholics. The young man led them into four pews he had previously rented for the visitors. He continued to do this important work each Sunday until God called him into the worldwide ministry. You ask the name of this young man? Dwight L. Moody. Interesting. Every person has to um, decide for themselves whether they are going to follow Jesus or not. To follow him means that he is Lord and Savior, even as the woman of Samaria declared in John 4, 42. He calls the shots in my life, and I live my life now according to the standards of his word, illuminated by the Spirit of God, crucified life, Galatians 2, 20. Every person who accepts Jesus as their Savior and Lord needs to reflect on their life occupation. If what one is doing prior to being a Christian is not contrary to the Scriptures, then I can continue to do the same thing. I'm walking in the life, First John 1, 6. But if I am living and pursuing my occupation in an occupation that is ungodly, the pornography industry, a prostitute, or even a bartender. How can I work at a bar and sell alcohol and get people buzzed and all the junk that goes along with it? Or whatever it may be. A drug dealer. You're an exotic dancer. Which means a stripper. We change the vocabulary to make it sound so sanitized and so nice. But if you're a new creature, you couldn't go back to that. It's impossible. Every one of us should um, be known after the same identity as Jesus. One who uh, eats and drinks with sinners and ministers the gospel. Uh, we're ambassadors of Christ, Second Corinthians 5.20. As God opens those doors to minister wherever they may be. One not to be intimidated by the holier-than-thou Pharisees that still exist today. Uh, Paul deals with this in 2 Timothy 1.7. And one who calls them to repentance. Not just fellowships, not just nice, not you just give them money or food, but that you, you present the gospel, their greatest need. The call of Matthew was um, embraced wholeheartedly. Thirdly comes um, the commission of Matthew. Matthew was to be the author of the first gospel. He being a Jew and chosen to write the Jew, to the Jews regarding the Messiah in order to show them that Jesus was the Messiah, focusing on the teaching and sayings of Jesus 
as the son of David. He gives the genealogy there in chapter 1. He quotes more Old Testament scriptures and about the Messiah than any other author, even combined. The repeated phrase such as, this is done in fulfillment, that it might be fulfilled, it is written, you have heard it said, all with a distinct purpose in mind. Jesus was the Messiah. Matthew forms a natural bridge between the Old Testament and the New, as you know, in fulfillment of Malachi's promise of the coming Messiah. Jewish customs are not explained because he's writing to the Jew. He doesn't have to explain them. The law is key to the Sermon on the Mount. He's talking to the Jew. Matthew's gospel was the most widely read gospel in the early church. His old profession prepared him for that recording of the gospel, um, though he was despised by the Jews. Matthew was present from Capernaum at the Ascension, at the Upper Room, at Pentecost in Acts 1 and 2. Matthew was the only eyewitness and traveler with Jesus besides John who wrote the Gospel of John. Mark wrote the Gospel from Peter. Luke wrote the Gospel from interviews. Matthew was to present Jesus as the King of the Jews. He presents Jesus as the King of the Jews. The first three are called synoptic, meaning to view or to see together, each recording the life and ministry of Jesus from an individual perspective. Matthew writes to the Jew, Mark to the Roman, Luke to the Gentiles, John to the church. Different audience. The kingdom of heaven appears 32 times, but nowhere else in the New Testament. Kingdom of heaven. The phrase kingdom of God four times. The word kingdom 56 times. Jesus is called the son of David nine times. Matthew alone quotes Jesus' words about his throne and his glory. Matthew 19, 28, and Matthew 25, 31. Only Matthew calls Jerusalem the holy city, the city of the king, Matthew 4, 5, and 5, 35. Jesus is not only presented as king of the Jews, but the judge, Matthew 19, 28, 24, 27, and two or three other ones. There is the denunciation of Jewish rulers and scribes for corrupting their traditions. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, Matthew 23. There is a clear and strong warning to prepare the Jews for the last day persecution, Matthew 24. The church is nowhere in Matthew 24, if you're with us in our study, or 25. That's Jewish ground. It's the day of the Lord. It's not talking about the rapture. It's the tribulation period. Many people misinterpret it. The kingdom of Jesus is spiritual, but will be manifested physically also. The Great Commission is the closing signature of Matthew, for he loves sinners as his master, Jesus. Matthew 28, 19 through 20. Now Matthew was to record some of the most important things hidden 
in the past. The passage is called the kingdom parables, as you know, where Jesus lays out the mysteries of the kingdom in Matthew 13, verse 1 through 52. Matthew tells us that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things kept secret from the foundation of the world, Matthew 13, 35. Things never revealed before. The parable of the sower, the parable of the wheat and tares, the parable of the mustard seed, the parable of leaven, the parable of the pearl of great price, the parable of the dragnet. All new things he was revealing kept secret. The parables had a twofold purpose, as you know, to incite a desire to understand for those who are still open to God. Therefore, I speak to them in parables because seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand, Matthew thirteen thirteen. So parables weren't to hide, but to stimulate their curiosity that they might look at it from a different perspective and they hit them right between the eyes. But also to hinder seeing those who have hard hearts and kept them from understanding due to their own doing, not God's. It says, and in them, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, which says, hearing you will hear and shall not understand, and seeing you will see and not perceive, Matthew 13, 14. Now people say, now why did God do that? No, 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 read it again. Because of the hardness of their heart, that parable became a cutting sword against them. Because they had hardened their heart so much. It wasn't God's doing. It was their own doing. Matthew 13, 15 says, For the hearts of the people have grown dull, their ears have hard of hearing, and their eyes have been closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand in their hearts and turn, and so that I should heal them. His desire was to save the word heal. There is so so it means to save as well as to heal. The parable of the sower and the rest are key to understand all other parables. Mark is the only one who tells us this. Listen very carefully, Mark 4.13. Mark is the one who says, And he said to them, listen carefully, Do you not understand this parable? The parable of the sower. How then will you understand all the parables? The parable of the sower is the key parable to all parables. It's the foundation. Any other parable that contradicts that foundation, you're misinterpreting it. And parables do one of two things. They compare or they contrast. And not everything in the parable is interpreted. There's a central message, a punchline. If you were with us in our teaching of parables, you remember. Livingston planned to go to China. But God led him to Africa to be its missionary statesman, general, and explorer. Alexander Mackey prepared for the work in Madagascar, but was directed to Uganda to aid him in founding one of the most remarkable missions in the world. William Carey purposed to go to South Seas, but was guided divinely to India to give the Bible in their native tongue and its teeming millions. God directs, God guides, God anoints, God sends, ladies and gentlemen. My responsibility is to say, Lord, am I where you have sent me? Am I doing what you have called me? And am I trusting your anointing and your gifts and your enablement to do it? Hmm. Have you limited yourself in what God wants to do in your life in Christ? Apart from me, you can do nothing, John 15, 5. He will enable you, as Matthew 
He will be the one to choose what that is and he will be faithful in all aspects. He never calls without enabling you. Is Jesus your king? As Revelation 19, 6 says. Does he call all the shots in your life? Does he have access to every area of your life? Does he know that you would do as Matthew, arise and be born? Do you understand the kingdom parables? In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, Colossians 2, 3, 2 says. In him. If you do understand the kingdom parables, you will be sharing Christ with sinners, knowing that he's coming for his church, then he's coming to judge the earth. If you do, then you are vigilant to false doctrine. You're a watchman on the wall. If you do, then you will know that not all who say they are Christian will enter the kingdom of God. If you do know that Christ will separate the true church at the rapture is because you understand these parables. We stand on one of two sides, ladies and gentlemen, with Christ or against Christ. I must judge it to the scriptures. The commission of Matthew was to affect the entire world and the church. And so Matthew, the eighth apostle, by these three categories has taught as much. The character of Matthew was one of utter sin. The call of Matthew was embraced wholeheartedly. The commission of Matthew was to affect the entire world and the church. All those three apply to you and I. No different. Father, we worship you. We thank you for your grace and love. We thank you for your mercy over our life. I thank you for every person present and over the internet, Lord, and the radio comes on next time. We just thank you for the privilege of being able to proclaim your word and to see you do an incredible work in lives of people, Lord. As you're praying, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins. If you're over the internet, right wherever you're at, if you believe Jesus Christ is God who became man, died for your sins and rose from the dead, even as Matthew did, you can call upon him. If the Spirit of God has allowed you to see your wretchedness, your undeservedness towards heaven, and that if you don't repent, you perish, that is the grace of God. I would recommend that you not procrastinate, that you do not say, well, maybe I'll think about it. Maybe tomorrow's promise to nobody. Roger was here last Sunday. I didn't, I expected to see him again today. The Lord took him home yesterday. Now for him, it's a blessing. He's with the Lord. But if you die without the Lord, it will not be a blessing. It will be a heartbreak to God. 
and certainly not very well for you. So if you want to be born again, repent of your sins, this is your prayer to the Lord. Why will you sit right now? Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me for all my sins, Lord. Give me a brand new heart. Baptize me with your Holy Spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen.